Hello again, friends, and welcome back to my book review podcast. This is episode 29 of Unknown Friends, my next to last episode of season one, and I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, reader and writer from Kitty Wayne Productions. Thank you for tuning in today, and if you haven't already, I hope you subscribe to the podcast, and if you enjoy this episode, please leave a review at the end. Thanks so much. Now, today's book is a novel I have greatly been looking forward to reviewing, All the Light We Cannot See by American author Anthony Doerr. Now, this book, um, I think I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, was a birthday gift from my brother-in-law, Matt. He really likes the book and thought I would enjoy it as well, and he was sure right on that. As I started reading the book, I just couldn't get away from the thought, if I could write like anyone, I might choose this author. I just, I loved his writing style. I cannot tell you how much I loved it. Um, I'll describe his style in more detail in a minute, but first, let me quickly introduce the author himself. So Anthony Doerr was born in 1973 in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so he's only 47 years old. He now lives in Boise, Idaho with his wife and twin sons. His first publication was a short story collection called The Shell Collector, which came out in 2002, before he'd even hit age 30. Since then, he has published a second short story collection, a memoir titled Four Seasons in Rome, and two novels. Um, the most recent of which is All the Light We Cannot See, published just six years ago in 2014. Now, Anthony Doerr has won lots of prizes, and his work has been translated into lots of languages. Um, so, suffice it to say, he's he's a pretty good writer. Uh, I guess I, w I will just specify, since it's our topic today, his novel All the Light We Cannot See was on the New York Times bestseller list for over two years, um, and it won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. So, All the Light We Cannot See is a World War II novel, and uh, part of the reason I chose to review it today is in honor of Veterans Day. All the Light We Cannot See really begins back in 1934 and builds up to World War II, where it culminates in late 1944 in France. The novel tells the stories of two characters, a German boy named Werner and a French girl named Marie Laure. Werner is an orphan with a little sister he takes care of, and at a young age, he shows a remarkable talent with electronics. When he's just eight years old, he finds a primitive, um, discarded old radio that he takes home and tinkers with until he finally gets it to work. And this is a turning point in his life. This is when uh, radio was still somewhat of a novelty, um, especially to a couple of uh, penniless orphans. And the scene where they first hear static on their tiny radio and then for the first time hear a voice speaking to them through it. Uh, and then music and orchestra is just magical. Uh, a new world opens to them through this crude little radio. And it's genuinely a kind of miracle. Well, Werner has all this potential. He's, he's so gifted in mathematics uh, and mechanics. But 
he lives in a coal mining town. His father lived and died in the mines, and Werner's fate will be the mines as well, unless he can somehow find a different future. Well, he gains a reputation in town as a, a kind of radio mechanic, and one day he's called in to fix the radio of a high-ranking German official. And through that, he seems to find a way out of this place he's trapped in. But where this way leads Werner is to a military school for Hitler youth. This is now 1940, the war is underway, and Werner is only 14, but his superiors see that he is gifted. And they have in mind a use for him and, and for his skill. Now, on the other side of the novel is Marie Lor, a daughter of the head locksmith at the Natural History Museum in Paris. Marie Lor lost her mother very young, um, but she's very close to her father. And she also lost her sight very young. And her father has helped train her to be as self-reliant as possible, despite her blindness. So she reads Braille. She's able to navigate through the city of Paris, um, at least between her home and the Natural History Museum, very competently. And really, all her other four senses are just super attuned. She detects sounds and smells that most people would never notice. Uh, and her hands are so deft. She, she feels textures and shapes. And her fingers are almost eyes in that she really gets a picture of what's around her or what items she's dealing with in a, a given situation by feeling them. And that just enables her to sort of envision and um, assess them. Anyway, the part of the story written from her point of view is so interesting, even just on the level of description, because there's minimal visual description, and yet you still feel like you have such a well-rounded uh, perception of where you are and what's going on in spite of that. It's it's really amazing. So um, Marie-Laure's story begins in Paris, where she lives with her father, but in 1940, the Germans invade Paris, and so thousands of French citizens there flee to the countryside or other cities, uh, although really all of France becomes um, German-occupied soon. But Marie-Laure and her father go to a city on the north coast of France, Saint-Malo, where uh, Marie's great-uncle lives. But when they leave Paris, the Natural History Museum, uh, desperately trying to protect its many treasures from the Germans, sends a priceless diamond with one of its employees who's leaving the city. But the museum also sends some replicas of the diamond with other employees. And so for security reasons, no one knows who has the real diamond, not even the person who's bearing it. And Mari's father is one of the men who is given either the real gem or a replica to protect it from the Germans. And this mission uh, contributes to the shape of their lives during the German occupation. Now, it's intriguing to me to know the ideas that first um, sparked the concept of this book in Anthony Doerr's mind. So there's uh, like a three-minute video on his website, anthonydoerr.com, where he talks about the inspiration for this novel. And he says the first thing happened uh, 10 years before the book was published. He was in an underground uh, railroad terminal in New York City, 
And the guy next to him was was poking on his cell phone and started complaining about not getting service and his phone not working. And he was all frustrated. And Anthony Doerr was just standing there thinking, you know, seriously? You're upset because your miraculous device that transmits and receives messages across the world and allows you to actually hear a person's voice, no matter how distant they are. You're upset it's not working at the moment because we're 80 feet underground about to board a train that travels under everyone in New York City's feet. You know, um, I mean, I'm, I'm slightly putting words in Anthony Doerr's mouth here, admittedly, but essentially he says he was dismayed at the idea that we've lost the awareness of how just unbelievable, incredible our world is. Of course, both the natural world, but also uh, technology like telephone or radio transmission. And so his first inspiration for All the Light We Cannot See was to recover some of the magic of hearing a person's voice speaking to you from a little device like this. So you can connect already this concept and Werner's skill with electronics and his uh, utter amazement and wonder when he finally gets his, his first little radio to work. Then secondly, Dor says he visited France and explored the coastal town of Saint-Malo and heard its history of being occupied by the Germans during the war and finally uh, being half destroyed in 1944, um, actually by American bombers who were, of course, trying to destroy the, the German hold on the city. And in the novel, Saint-Malo is, of course, where Marie-Laure and her father live with her great-uncle after leaving Paris. And it's there in Saint-Malo that Marie's story and Werner's story ultimately uh, converge. And then lastly, Dor says he started reading about the invasion of Paris itself back in 1940 and learned about all the national treasures that had to be protected if possible, uh, pieces of artwork, statues, gems, all kinds of uh, cultural pieces and scientific treasures. And he was just fascinated by this element of uh, French World War II history, and he wanted to incorporate it into the novel as well. So those are some of the things that inspired this novel. Now let me talk a bit about the style and structure of the book, because it's unique, and I really, really enjoyed Dor's approach. So, big picture first, although it's never actually uh, in first-person point of view, the chapters generally alternate between focusing on Werner and on Marie, with uh, occasional chapters from the perspective of other characters. The chapters are very short, most are only maybe two to five pages, uh, so I found it easy to read in the sense that even if you have only a few minutes, you can still get a chapter or two read and you never have to stop in the middle of a section. The book is also narrated in present tense. Now, this may not be something you necessarily notice about a book, but of course, most novels are written in past tense. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But contemporary novels are more and more frequently now experimenting with present tense. But I admit I have been a bit skeptical, uh, even a bit um, snobbish about these, these modern novels that buck tradition. However, I stand corrected. Um, 
I, I now believe that it can be done very well and for a good purpose, not just to be cool or different. Uh, so if you want an example of present tense narration executed um, effectively and inconspicuously, read all the light we cannot see. What it achieves is just an immediacy uh, or an intimacy with the story and the characters. It's a subtle difference, but at least the way Dora does it, present tense pulls you very closely into um, the moment-by-moment events of the story. But one more thing about Anthony Dora's style, although this is also a more uh, general thing about his evident interests and, and what he wants to highlight in the story and in the reader's overall view of the world, his style uniquely combines art and science. So I would describe the way he writes as both poetic and technical. It's it's so fascinating. He uses um, similes and metaphors like crazy, so comparisons between uh, some thing he's describing and something else that the thing is like in some way. So for instance, in an early chapter, he is describing the bombs falling from the sky on San Malo. And uh, he writes this, let me quote, a demonic horde upended sacks of beans, a hundred broken rosaries. There are a thousand metaphors and all of them are inadequate. 40 bombs per aircraft, 480 altogether, 72,000 pounds of explosives. Now, just in that little paragraph, you have three metaphors, demonic horde, sacks of beans, broken rosaries, and even an acknowledgement of his metaphors. And then he concludes with the technical description, the numbers of bombs and pounds of explosives. So even in that short passage, you already get a tiny glimpse of both his poetic side and his scientific side. And those two um, interplay throughout the whole novel, and they combine to give such a balanced and thorough narrative. He uses both technical and artistic descriptions to convey exactly the details and the impressions that he wants to portray at any given moment. Sometimes you need the technical details to give you an absolutely um, precise and truly vivid description of something. And then sometimes you need a more poetic description, a metaphor, or an unexpected adjective that illuminates something beyond the technical aspects of a thing, its um, associations or symbolism. And all of this is what makes me love this guy's writing style. He really knows what he's doing and takes great care with every detail, choosing which details to bring attention to at all, and then choosing how exactly to bring them out, more scientifically or artistically, or a blend of both, as in the description of the bombing. But this interest in both science and art goes deeper, I think, than just the level of style. It's part of Dorr's worldview, and it shapes the worldview of the novel. Wonder is key. Wonder at the natural world, and man's own creations. Uh, so you have the miracle of radio, right, that we've already talked about. Uh, we shouldn't take technology like that for granted. We should stop and admire it and appreciate what it adds to our lives. And similar with 
God's creation. Although my understanding is that Anthony Doerr is, is not a Christian, so he wouldn't call it God's creation. But be that as it may, he wants us to pause and wonder at the world around us. In this novel, he particularly draws notice to a couple specific elements of the natural world. Uh, gems, perhaps most obviously, uh, but also quite prominently shells and the ocean. So uh, Marie-Laure, when she is growing up in Paris and spending most of her days at the Natural History Museum, she loves to hear about uh, mollusks and, and snails and other sea creatures. And she she feels physically feels the shell collection, hundreds of different shells, until she can identify each one by touch. And later she receives a copy in Braille of the book 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which she just devours. And this book plays an important role later in the novel. And then when she moves to Saint-Malo on the sea, again the ocean and uh, the creatures in it are dear to her, and she just marvels at them and and their way of life. So Anthony Doerr wants us to notice things. He wants us to pay attention to the creatures around us, as well as the earth itself. Uh, I mean, for instance, not just gems, but even <laughs> plain old rocks. If I pick up a rock from a stream bed, you know how much older that rock is than I am? It's crazy. <laughs> So it's ridiculous for me to go around and just ignore the wonders of the creation around me, especially when I am such a, a young and transient thing in a physical sense, compared with rocks and oceans, which are, are just so much older and more enduring in this life than a human being is. That's a marvel worth noticing. And I think that perspective is one of the most central things Anthony Doerr wants to communicate in All the Light We Cannot See. If any quotation from the novel sums up his worldview, I think it's this one. Doerr writes, Open your eyes and see what you can with them before they close forever. Now, that kind of leads us to the part of the story I didn't like as well. The ending. Now, I'm not going to give away spoilers, uh, no more than uh, the comments from the critics on the book's cover that call the story heartbreaking, but I was really sad at how the story ended. Um, and I mean, it, it wasn't like everyone died. It was just, in the end, everyone had really empty lives. And I don't want to be trite or, or too obvious, but the undeniable reason for this is simply that this novel is not written from a Christian worldview. So Dora is very consistent, uh, and he portrays truth in the sense that without God, a story uh, or a life can't find real satisfaction. So I, I appreciate his project to make us stop and look around us and choose gratitude for each other and for the world in which we live. But wow, without Christ in the picture, there is simply no way to have a real happy ending. Even if a character does, you know, survive through the story, his or her life is still going to be a kind of tragedy. Now, I should have expected this, and I hope if you go into the novel, you will expect this and be less disappointed than I was when I finished reading it. But I'm not going to lie, I 
cried hard (laughs) through the last um, 50 pages of the book. I read the ending all in one sitting and was literally crying the whole time, and I don't do that. (laughs) Seriously, I mean, I might shed a tear on a few books, but very few books have ever made me, like, weep. And, and again, I think if I had better guided my, my expectations or, or my hopes, it wouldn't have hit me quite so hard. Uh, because I shouldn't have expected there to be more of a fulfilling or meaningful ending than there was. Uh, it was perfectly consistent with Dor's overall worldview. What did me in and raised my hopes was just how much I loved the characters. Uh, and, and this is a testament, again, to Dor's brilliant writing. So not only does he just expertly draw you into the world of his story and the narrative, but he truly makes you feel like you know the main characters personally, and he makes you deeply care about what happens to them. And that's why I was so crushed when their lives seemed pretty empty in the end. Um, even, even Werner, uh, and in one of Dor's interviews, I heard him say this was a, a major conscious goal of his as he was writing. Even Werner, a member of Hitler Youth during World War II, who helps track down members of the Russian and French resistance, is deeply sympathetic. He is imperfect. He sometimes lies to himself. He knows the German project is not exactly right, uh, at least not the way it's executed. Uh, So he's in the middle, really, of a huge mess. And yet, Anthony Doerr manages to make the reader love Werner and sympathize with his situation. Um, And we care similarly about Marie-Laure, although I think Doerr didn't have to do as much work in her case since her being on the Allied side of the war just makes her uh, kind of naturally sympathetic to modern readers. So here's the thing. I've, I've got to wrap this up. This novel is immersive. It's gripping, almost enthralling. At least that was my experience. I thought at first this might be partially due to the fact that I was reading it in print and not as an audiobook, which is how I do most of my reading. So I wondered if it seemed particularly compelling just because of the time I was taking with the book to really savor the style um, and contemplate on each chapter. But my mom then listened to the book on Audible, and she seemed to have a very similar experience. Uh, She says she's not sure she has ever read a book that drew her in so deeply and stayed with her so long. So I think it's just Anthony Doerr. (sighs) He knows how to bring you into the world of the story and make you care intensely about the people in it. What he doesn't know is uh, redemption, sadly. You know, the book is titled All the Light We Cannot See, and that is referring somewhat to to hope and love and things that help get people through dark times like World War II. And it's also referring to light and its connection to radio waves. Of course, we can't see radio waves, but they're on the electromagnetic spectrum, same as light. But really, in my opinion... I would just call this book Light We Cannot See, because I don't think he sees it all. In my worldview, there's so much more light than Anthony Doerr is able to capture in this novel, 
or I think even knows about himself. So do I recommend all the light we cannot see? Absolutely, um, to certain people. And I hope my review helps any of you who are interested in reading it to approach it with the right expectations, knowing that the ending won't um, be satisfying in an ultimate sense. However, I do recognize and admire Dor's intent in this book to illuminate all we do have to be grateful for in this life, one another most fundamentally, and then on top of that, just all the miracles that we encounter every single day in the world around us. I think that's a perspective that's all too easy for us to lose as we go about our daily lives and we take for granted so much that we could appreciate. And Anthony Doerr communicates this perspective really beautifully. Of course, it is a World War II book. Um, there's not a lot of violence, but there is a little. Um, and there is a lot of darkness. It's, it's a heavy book thematically. There is also a little bit of strong language, only a few times, um, but I definitely remember two or three instances for sure of um, vulgarity. So just a forewarning there. It's certainly not a book for kids. Uh, I think mature teens could handle it, um, but not everyone, even some adults, I think will care for a book this heavy, just as a matter of personal taste. Now, personally, I am so glad I read it. Uh, even if I did cry through the ending, I'm, I'm grateful for the valuable perspective it did give me. And I'm also so grateful as a writer that I experienced this book. Like I said at the beginning, if I could write in the style of any author, I might just choose Anthony Doerr. Strangely, I've read enough reviews of the book that I've realized uh, his style does not work for some people. I'm not sure why, but I loved it and learned from it, and for that I'm very thankful. All right, that is it for today. Remember, this is my penultimate episode of season one. So after next week, I will be taking a break for the holidays, but I'll be back in January and I will be posting some bonus content in between. So check in for those bonus episodes if you don't want to miss out. Next week for my last book review of my first season of Unknown Friends, I thought I would uh, practice symmetry and uh, bring balance to the force by concluding season one with a C.S. Lewis review to match my very first episode back in April when I discussed Till We Have Faces. So next Wednesday, I will be reviewing another of his standalone works of fiction, The Great Divorce, which if you haven't read, you need to. So I look forward to discussing The Great Divorce, and please join me next week for that review in episode 30. Again, I'm Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and if you want to learn more about me and my writing, just head to my website, kittywamproductions.com, linked in the episode description. I'll see you next week.